to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you would now open with me to the New Testament, to the book of Romans in chapter 1, as we consider a message together entitled, Unashamed. And while you're turning there, let me mention to you, if you were unaware of it, today marks the beginning of Passion Week. It is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, it was the day that Jesus told his disciples to retrieve a donkey, a colt of a donkey specifically, and to bring it to him there as he was to mount that donkey there on the Mount of Olives, and then to go down the Mount of Olives, crossing over the Kidron Valley, making his way up to Jerusalem. And for the first time in his ministry, he allowed the crowds that were gathered to proclaim him as their Messiah. Many people were waving palm branches. That is how we get the term Palm Sunday. And they were crying out one of the Messianic Psalms, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word Hosanna means save now. They desired that Jesus would save them from Roman occupation, not their sin. And thus many at the end of the week, although at the beginning of the week they were crying out Hosanna, at the end of the week they'd be crying out, crucify him. We will not have this man to reign over us. So today, as Pastor Chris mentioned, marks the beginning, I believe personally, of one of the greatest weeks in human history when everything in the world changed. His death, his resurrection, our salvation. Amen? (laughs) Well, with that said, beginning in verse 8, if you'd follow along with me. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Shall we pray together? And now, Father, we do pray that you would open up our understanding. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would begin to move in the hearts of the people who are gathered here today. And Lord, that there would be response to the message, the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul the Apostle was the author of this letter written to the Romans. And the Romans were a group of people that he had never met before. That is why his letter begins with a personal introduction. First of all, he shares about who he was as a man. Then, what his calling was as a minister. And most importantly, the message that he preached, which was the gospel. As the letter continues, we now observe Paul's motivation. Why did he reach out to the Romans? What was his intention? What did he hope to achieve by establishing this contact with this congregation? The apostle reveals several things in only a few verses. First of all, he tells us that he was thankful for the church. In verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ 
for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Although we had never met the people, Paul declared that he was thankful for them. And the reason that he was filled with such gratitude was that news had traveled concerning the reputation of their faith. He had heard of all of the great things that God was doing in Rome. Their belief in God, their trust in God, their ministry in the name of the Lord was well spoken of and the apostle was appreciative. It's important that we understand that being a Christian in Rome wasn't easy. If you've ever read of the history of Rome, you'll find, as one writer said, quote, Rome had no conscience. She was lustful, a devouring beast, made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor. But in the midst of this hostile and intolerant environment, the faith of the believers, it was unshakable. And for that, Paul was thankful. Some churches are famous because of their pastor, not this one, or their architecture, or the size of their building, or the wealth of the church. But the church in Rome was famous because of its faith. It was a fellowship of genuinely redeemed believers through whom the Lord Jesus Christ manifested his life and power so that their character was known everywhere. I wonder what people know of our personal faith or of the faith of this fellowship. The Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God, and anyone that comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. Do we live out our faith, or do we seek to keep it private, hidden? Do people see our faith on display by the way that we live? Again, the Bible tells us that faith, apart from works, is dead. True faith will always produce spiritual fruit. Good works follow genuine faith. And Paul could look at the Roman congregation, and he was rejoicing, filled with thankfulness. Are you filled with thankfulness today? Like the apostle, have you found reason to praise God this morning? Do you make a choice to rejoice from a prison cell? In Philippians chapter 4, Paul wrote these words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. It was a command, not just a suggestion. Paul was not only thankful for the church, but secondly, he was praying for the church. It says in verse 9, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son without ceasing. I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. What a tremendous encouragement this must have been to the church in Rome to find out that Paul the apostle was consistently, he says, constantly praying for them. He was engaged in intercession on their behalf. This wasn't the only church, by the way, that Paul prayed for. In writing to the Thessalonians, he declared, We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight 
of God our Father. He prayed for the churches that he established and ministered to. In writing to the Ephesians, it is actually recorded two of Paul's prayers. He wrote down and shared with them the things that he was specifically praying for them as a congregation. You get the idea that Paul was a man of prayer, traveling great distances on his missionary journeys, provided time to pray. No doubt, time spent in prison also gave Paul the opportunity to pray. He encouraged others to pray without ceasing, to remain in consistent communication with the Lord. Paul's specific prayer request was that the Lord would allow him to visit the believers in Rome. The Lord up to this point had not opened the door, but he kept on praying for the opportunity. And the type of praying that Paul was engaged in, listen carefully, was intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer is the act of praying on behalf of others. Most of us don't find it difficult to pray for ourselves. I find it comes very naturally. But Paul was engaged in the ministry of intercession. Prayer is sometimes neglected, sadly, within the church, and yet it is necessary and a powerful ministry within the body of Christ. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that the early church kept themselves, actually gave themselves over to the ministry of prayer. You can go through the history of the early church and you will find repeatedly when they would pray. Prayer was not an afterthought in the early church. Prayer was at the forefront. It was a top priority. And prayer doesn't simply prepare us for greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Someone said you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Prayer is so powerful. In the book of James, James tells us in chapter 5 that it is the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much. How important the ministry of intercessory prayer is to the body of Christ I think of the words of Samuel Rutherford concerning intercessory prayer. He said, quote, I have been benefited by praying for others, for by making an errand to God for them, I've gotten something for myself. I think of what Thomas Watson said when he reflected upon the early church and how they prayed for Peter's deliverance from prison. He said, quote, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Not only did Paul pray and intercede, but also this was modeled in the life and ministry of Jesus. Within the gospel record, we often find Jesus withdrawing from the crowds to pray. You may recall that when a desperate father came to Jesus and pleaded with him to deliver his son from demon possession... The religious leaders, as well as Jesus' disciples, were unable to help. Jesus then delivered the young man from the demon, and the disciples then asked Jesus why it was that they were ineffective. And Jesus replied, this kind only goes out with prayer and fasting. The implication is that Jesus had been praying and fasting prior to this encounter with evil, and thus there was power available to deliver this young man. 
as Jesus got closer to the cross. He knew that the disciples were struggling with his soon departure. In fact, they didn't even want to talk about it. And Jesus, knowing this, at one point said to Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus engaged in intercessory prayer on behalf of his disciples. At one point, the disciples, recognizing the power attached to Jesus' prayer life, made a request of him. In Luke 11, they came to him and said, it came to pass that as he, Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he had ceased, that his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. As you continue in this letter to the Romans, you'll discover that Paul points out the intercessory ministry of Jesus right now in heaven. In Romans chapter 8, it says, It is Christ who died, furthermore is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus, right now, at this moment, is interceding on our behalf. He's praying for us that our faith would not fail, that we would be a church that would be ready for his return, that we would be a pure and spotless bride able to stand in the midst of an evil world. Paul mentioned he was thankful for the church, also that he was praying for the church. But third, he states that he was longing for the church. You'll notice in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. The continuous desire to see the believers was actually now a burden upon Paul's heart. It was a passionate determination that he had within. Paul gives the explanation for his motives. Why is it that he was so determined to see these people? What was the motive behind that? What did he hope to achieve? He tells us his first desire was that he might be able to serve them. That was his desire. This would be accomplished by imparting, he uses the word imparting, a spiritual gift to help further establish them. Paul desired that the believers in Rome would be strengthened in their faith as a result of the gift that God would give them through his ministry. And Paul had been uniquely gifted by the Lord and he wanted to use those gifts in order to serve and to be a blessing and an encouragement to the church. In other words, he longed to see them, not to get something from them, but to give something to them. Paul was not traveling to the church in Rome as a consumer. What can the church in Rome do for me? Actually, he was attending the church in order to see what he could do and what he could impart. Some people approach the church in that way, in a consumer-driven mentality. What can this church do for me? And not very much. And so I'm going to find a church that can, they say, or suggest, or think, perhaps. I don't know. But then there's others that come to the church and they want to be a part of the body and they engage in service in the midst of the body of Christ. That was Paul's heart. And I would say that that is Jesus's heart for Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. 
In addition to serving them, the second thing, he wanted to support them. To serve them, but to support them. And this is noted when he uses the word established. I want to see you established. It's a word that means stabilizing something by providing support. In a place like Rome, your faith could easily falter. You are surrounded by persecution. You're in a culture of intolerant paganism. You need support. You need backup. You need somebody coming alongside and encouraging you. And that's what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to establish them. Listen, folks, engage in the ministry of coming alongside of other people and establishing them, helping them, lifting other people up when they fall, coming alongside of them. That's what the body of Christ is for. When one of us hurts, we all hurt. When one of us is affected, we're all affected. Look out for one another. Don't look out just for your own interests, but for the interests of other people. That was Paul's desire. I want to serve you. I want to support you, in other words. But there was a third reason that the apostle longed to be with the church in Rome, and that was for his own personal encouragement. The desire for mutual ministry. They could learn something from him, but he even alludes to the fact that he could learn something from them personally. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know how contagious it is to spend time with new believers. If you don't, you should hang around some new believers because it's exciting. Everything is so brand new. The word of God is brand new. Worship is new. Everything is new. Did you, did you hear? Did you see that verse? Do you know what that means? That means my sins are forgiven. You know what? You're right. That is so, that's an encouragement to me. You know what? I went out and one of my coworkers, I took him out to lunch and I told him about Christ. And you know what? He prayed to receive Christ right there in McDonald's. It was awesome. You should have been there. It was great. And you think, you know what? I need to take somebody to McDonald's. I need to, I need to share with somebody about the Lord. There is just this, this fire that they have that, that encourages you. It's contagious. But I would also say the flip side of that is when you are a new believer and you hang around those who are seasoned in their walk with the Lord. And they can share things with you that maybe you've never heard before, you didn't know before, and they can encourage you. There is this mutual encouragement we can learn from one another. And I love the fact that although Paul was an apostle, he said, I'm just excited to get around this, this fellowship of faith that is known throughout the world, and I want to get charged up. I mean, he was excited about being with them and receiving mutual encouragement from them. You know, I find that there are occasions when the Lord allows me to travel to different places in the world, but even in the country. And in those, on those occasions, when I get the opportunity to share, I'm there to actually impart something prayerfully to those who are gathered. But I end up finding myself encouraged by the people that I'm going to minister to. Basically, that's what Paul was desiring. That was what he wanted and why he longed for them so much. Now, this was his desire, this was his prayer, this was his passion, and yet he mentions that there were hindrances to his travel arrangements. Look at verse 13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren. I've often planned to come to you, but I was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles." Now, there may have been some in Rome wondering what was taking Paul so long to arrive. They had heard of his ministry, other churches that he had planted near 
the vicinity of Rome, but he had actually never been to the city. They heard he longed for them. He wanted to be there, but he never showed up. Why? Why the delay? And remember this, there were people who preceded Paul before he got to a church, and then they followed after Paul when he left the church, and and they always had a lot of lies to speak about the apostle. They, They would say things about him, and so when he arrived in a place, people already had a preconceived idea about him that actually wasn't true. And so perhaps he's writing this to say, I don't know what you heard about me. Maybe you heard that I, I, you know, I say one thing, but I don't actually follow through with it. That was one of the rumors that was spread about Paul. But he lets this church know right up front, it has always been my intention. In fact, I have made plans. I'll show you my calendar, and I, I have sought to get to you, but I've been hindered repeatedly in my attempts to get to Rome until now. When you look at Paul's ministry, you think, well, what hindered him? What stopped him? from getting where he wanted to go. I think there are several things that the Bible records for us. For one thing, his health. If you know anything about Paul's life, he struggled with his own physical well-being. He was constantly uh, facing obstacles in his own physical hardships. He suffered greatly with many different things people have pointed out historically. So physical health sometimes was a hindrance. But there was another hindrance. And this hindrance was satanic, a satanic hindrance. Listen, when you seek to do the will of God, just know this, you're always going to be opposed by the devil. He will always seek to oppose you when you seek to do the will of God. It's just built-in opposition. You can count on it. It will be there. You may be facing it this morning. Don't be surprised if you are. Don't be surprised anymore. The satanic hindrances. In writing to the Thessalonians, this is what Paul said. He said in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he alludes to this fact. He said, we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and again. But, notice this, Satan hindered us from coming to you. Now, how did Satan hinder them? It doesn't say necessarily. Perhaps being put in prison, perhaps being afflicted. We don't exactly know. But we do know this. The devil sought to keep Paul from fulfilling the commission that he had been given by the Lord. His health, the devil, but then there's another hindrance, another obstacle, and this one might come as a surprise to you, and that is this. There were times in Paul's ministry when he and his companions were stopped by the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 16 tells us this very clearly. Listen to what it says. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia, And the region of Galatia, they, that is Paul and his companions, were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood pleaded with them saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, this is interesting. They wanted to preach the gospel in Asia. There's nothing wrong with that. Asia needs the gospel. And this is the apostle Paul. He's going to go in a direction. Let's go. And in the process of making their way there, the Lord shuts the door, stops them. The spirit stops them from going. Paul doesn't get discouraged. Well, let's try this direction. So they start going toward Bithynia. And a second time, the Holy Spirit stops them. But then it says they had a vision. Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia 
saying, come over and help us. So we thought, well, why don't we go down to Macedonia? And this time when they went to Macedonia, these two doors were closed. This one was wide open. And it was there in Macedonia that the church in Philippi was established. And that church was the most supportive of all the churches that Paul ever established. Here's the question. How does one know the difference? How do you determine whether this is the Lord stopping me or is this Satan hindering me? How do you know whether this is the Lord or this is the devil? What am I supposed to do? Is this the Lord shutting the doors? Is the enemy shutting the door? What do I do? Here's what you do. I don't know what you do. (laughs) I honestly don't always know how to determine. But here's what I do. Personally, I just keep going. I just keep going. Paul kept going. Okay, Lord, you shut the door, so I guess that's not the one I'm supposed to go through. Let me walk through this one. Okay, that's obviously not the one you want me to go through. Let's try this one, and then it opens up. I, we need to be able to trust God like that. If he shuts the door, praise him for it. Maybe there's a reason for it. If the devil's behind that closed door, listen, God's going to open it, because the Bible says he opens the doors that no man can shut, and he shuts the doors that no man can open. So don't worry about that. You just keep going, and God will make the path clear. Sometimes he shuts doors to get you to go through that one because you wouldn't go through that one. That one wasn't even on the radar, but the fact that he closed this one and he closed that one, I didn't see that one before. Obviously, he wanted you to go through this one. So just keep walking it out. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep taking steps of faith. You plan your ways. God will direct your paths. So be encouraged by that. You will be opposed, but God is ultimately going to guide and direct you sovereignly to where he wants you to go. And if you're willing to be led, he'll lead you. The apostle felt in a very real sense this obligation to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified because his life, he felt, and it's true, was saved through the message of the gospel. And because of that, he now refers to himself in verse 14 as a debtor. Verse 14, it says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. So as as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. When Paul refers to himself as a debtor, he was implying that he was a man under an obligation, bound by a burden to perform. He considered preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ a personal, moral obligation within his life. And regardless of the ethnicity of the group of people, be they Greeks, be they barbarians, be they intellectually wise or unwise. It didn't matter to Paul the status of the group of people. In fact, at one point he said, I become all things to all men. To this group, I'm going to adapt and I'm going to bring the gospel across. To this group of people, I know where they're coming from and so this is how I'm going to preach to them, but I'm going to bring the cross across. That was his desire. It was this moral obligation. It became a passion in his life. He was obligated to preach the gospel without distinction. He was a debtor. William McDonald commented on this, and he said, quote, anyone who has Christ has the answer to the world's deepest need. He has the cure to the disease of sin, the way to escape the eternal horrors of hell, and the guarantee of everlasting happiness with God. This puts him under solemn obligation to share the good news with people of all cultures. 
The greatest need that the world has is for Jesus Christ. That's the greatest need, salvation. We don't yet have the cure for cancer. But if we did, it would be criminal to keep it to ourselves when so many people are affected. But we do have the cure for eternal death through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thus, we are under obligation and under a great commission to share that message of the gospel. People are dying, not just physically, but they're stepping into eternity. And those who die without Christ are separated from him in hell forever. We have the cure to the greatest disease man has ever known, the disease of sin, and we have the antidote, and the antidote is the blood of Christ. And thus we are obligated to proclaim that message. And that isn't something that is just left to people who stand behind pulpits like this. This is for every believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul felt that he was under the obligation to preach this life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And he said here, I'm ready to do it. I'm ready to do it in Rome. A place where many Christians would be thrown to the lions, devoured for preaching such a message. Paul said, I'm ready. I read that and I thought, am I ready? Are you ready? The Bible says that we are to be ready to give everyone an answer for the hope that's within us with meekness and in fear. Are you ready? Are you looking for opportunity to present that message? Do you look for divine appointments? Are you open to perhaps a change in your agenda for the day that might impart to someone eternal life? Are we ready to preach the gospel? Some people are not ready. Some people are unwilling. And yet here, Paul declares, I am ready. Why was he ready? What would keep a person from being ready? I'll tell you what keeps many of us at times from being ready. We're ashamed of the gospel. Oh, Pastor John, how could you say that? I want you to understand what the word ashamed means here. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Folks, listen carefully. These two verses right here, this is the foundation from which the rest of Romans follows. Someone said this is like the acorn being planted and the enormous tree that comes out in the book of Romans. It starts right here in these two verses. Paul said, I am not ashamed. What does the word ashamed mean? The word ashamed means to be in fear. It means to experience a painful feeling or a sense of loss of status. It implies a feeling of shame that prevents someone from doing something or a reluctance to do something or say something because of fear of humiliation. And there is a lack of courage then to stand for something. That is what it means to be ashamed. It means to be afraid. And let's be honest. Every single one of us has been afraid. And what are we afraid of? If we're honest again, we're afraid of what this person is going to think of us. We're afraid of how they might look at us. We're afraid that we might be isolated. 
that for some reason people will no longer include us or they might not want to talk to us after this or they're our neighbor. We got to live to them, live next to them for the next however many years. And if I do this, then they're never going to talk to me again. And so I don't want to do that. There's a fear. There's more of a fear of man than there is a fear of God. There's more of a fear of what people are going to think about me than a fear of where they're going to be for eternity. And that needs to change. There needs to be a mental shift in the body of Christ concerning the gospel that we're no longer ashamed of it. Do you believe that? I'm saying I need that. I need that. Hey, listen, it's easy for me to get up here. Not easy, but it's easier to get up here and preach the gospel to a bunch of people who have their Bibles open. It's a whole different thing when I'm at the gas station next to somebody I don't know, and they're standing there, and the Lord's saying, John, tell them. I'm like, Lord, I'm just going to pump my gas. Tell them. Tell them the Spirit of God is just pounding on my heart. Lord, what if they spray me with gas? You know, all kinds of things that you start going through your mind. What are you afraid of? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Sometimes, again, if we're honest, we are. Paul boldly declared this was not part of his thinking process. This was not the apostolic mentality. Why? Why was he not ashamed? Think about this. Paul had reason to be ashamed. He had suffered the loss, he said, of all things. He had lost his job as a Pharisee. Well paid. Many believe that he also, perhaps suggesting here, that Paul may have been married and lost his marriage. Pharisees, who were members of the Sanhedrin, were married. Most of them. Almost all of them. It's no wonder, it wouldn't surprise me, Paul wrote so much on marriage. He had an understanding, obviously, of what marriage was about. And I don't think it was just theoretical. Perhaps he lost his marriage when he decided to follow Christ. His wife departed. But we do know that he suffered the loss of all things. And 30 years after the fact, he looks back at everything he's lost and he writes in his epistle, I count it as garbage in comparison to what I've received in Christ. In other words, he's saying, I would gladly lose it all again. I don't regret the decision that I have made to follow after Christ. The Jews that Paul sought to preach to, they would look at the message that he was preaching and they would say, you should be ashamed of yourself. How dare you present a message of a Messiah that was crucified? The Greeks, they would look at the message that Paul preached and they'd say, you know what? You need to be ashamed of yourself. How could you preach such an anti-intellectual, unphilosophical message like Christ? That is ridiculous. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're an ignoramus. They called him a seed picker there in Athens. The Romans, they would look at Paul's message and they would say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. There is no power to your message. Rome was fueled by power and dominance. And, and to serve a savior who was crucified, they'd say, that's weak. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And yet in the midst of all of the intolerance of the world, Paul was not ashamed regardless of what the world thought of him. He didn't care. And the reason Here it is, because the gospel, listen, folks, it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God. The word power here, make a note of it, circle it. It's the word dunamis, and it's the root from which we derive our English word dynamic. It means energetic, functioning, live, operative, working. It is a power, listen, that overcomes resistance, Dunamis is power in action. It's power to accomplish something. It's the ability to produce a strong effect. It is intrinsic power. The gospel, 
is God's dynamic, and it is so powerful that it is able to affect radical regeneration, and the Bible describes what happens to a person who is impacted by the gospel spiritually and describes it in this way. It's described as bringing a dead person back to life. A dead person, flatline, getting ready to have a memorial, about to be buried, completely dead, confirmed dead body. The Bible says spiritually, the gospel has the power to bring a dead person back to life. That's the power, the dynamic of the gospel. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through whom his spirit dwells in you. That's power. The power of the gospel. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he told them that he was determined only to preach the message of the cross. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, this is what he said. He said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Salvation, folks. In our world today, there are many, multiple messages out there that people latch onto to try to help them change. Change behaviors, alter destructive patterns, gain confidence, overcome depression. But the message of the gospel has life-changing power. Even in the church today, sadly, you may hear a message, but something might be missing. And I'll tell you in some places what is missing from the message. And this is not to be critical. This is to hold my own self accountable. But here's what is missing in some messages today, even within the church. Here it is. You ready? The offense of the cross. The offense of blood. Missing. It's offensive. And thus, rather than preach the clear, concise unadulterated message of the cross that may cause offense. There are those that want to water it down, make it more palatable to the hearer. But when they do it, they drain the power from the gospel. And it's no gospel at all. Someone said that an inoffensive gospel is an inoperative gospel. It's not saying be offensive when you present the gospel. It's saying the message itself, presented in love, spoken in love, is offensive. It is narrow. It declares that every single person is a sinner and destined to hell apart from salvation through Christ. I don't care what country you live, what culture you were raised in. This is the message of the gospel. It transcends culture. And here we find the power of the gospel. Listen, folks, there is nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who is convicted of his sin and realizes his need for a savior. And at that moment, the gospel message becomes extremely attractive. I need that. I'm lost without it. The message of the gospel is so powerful. Do you know why? Because it says here, it provides salvation. Salvation. The great inclusive word of the gospel 
found within it are all the redemptive acts and their processes, justification, redemption, grace, propitiation, imputation, forgiveness, sanctification, glorification, all found in the message of the gospel. Guys, the Bible speaks of the gospel in three ways. Salvation, I should say, in three ways. First of all, it speaks of being saved in the past. Ephesians 2.8, here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I have been saved by God's grace. Responding to the gospel, I have been saved. But also, the message of salvation is in the present. I am not only have been saved, I am currently being saved. That is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1.18. We read it a moment ago. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And the aspect of salvation is deliverance from the power of sin. And salvation has implications for the future. We will be saved. 1 Peter 1.5 says this. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I have been saved. I am presently being saved, and I will ultimately be saved in the future when I'm with my Savior for eternity in heaven. This is what salvation is. It's deliverance from the presence of sin. It refers, once again, to one day experiencing glorification when we become like our Savior. The gospel is the power of God to save us from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and from sin's reigning presence in our life. The gospel has the power to forgive sins in the past. It has the power to impart new life in the present and to admit us into heaven in the future. There is no other message that can save, but the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only, only the power of God is able to overcome our natural tendency to commit sin and to impart to us supernatural life. The Bible makes it clear. We cannot spiritually change ourselves or be saved by our good works or by the church or by being raised in a Christian home or by rituals including water baptism communion or by any other human means we must come by faith to the cross of Christ to be saved or we will not be saved that's the message of the gospel again Paul declares it is the power of God unto salvation. For who? For everyone who believes. To believe means an adherence to. It means a committal to, reliance in, trust in. It involves, listen, not just the consent of the mind, but the will and the heart. There is a surrender to Jesus. Do you remember when Paul and Silas were beaten and they were placed in prison? And as they were there at midnight, they began to sing songs to the Lord. And the Bible tells us that the prison doors began to swing open and an earthquake shook everything. And at that moment, the Philippian jailer who had been watching them came in and this is what he said to them. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your whole household. The greatest question ever asked, what do I need to do to be saved? Saved from hell, saved from sin, saved from destruction. What do I need to do? Here it is. 
Believe. Accept him. Receive him. That's it. He did the work. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It's finished. He paid it in full. He's just asking me to believe him. I come to the cross. I accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Not simply attend a church, but walk with the Lord. Have you been saved? Are you being saved? Will you be saved? You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt today. All the Bible tells us, the best news the world has ever heard in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. <coughs> Salvation is made available if we will receive it. Christian, let me ask you something today. I'll ask myself too. Are we ashamed of the gospel? Do we stand in fear of the world's intolerance? Are we willing to identify with Christ and take up our cross daily? Jesus told us, listen, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. There are brothers and sisters of ours around the world who are hated, persecuted, imprisoned, murdered because they've chosen to take up their cross and they have chosen to be a part of the congregation of the unashamed. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter nine, Jesus said these words and they're very sobering. He said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in the glory of his father and of the holy angels. And again, in Mark chapter eight, in verse 38, Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Hear the Lord warning us not to be ashamed of him. Folks, not to be in fear of man. Here's the great news. The Lord promises that although we may battle fear, that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. He will enable us to be courageous. He will give us the boldness we need to be the light that we've been called to be in this dark world. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Lord, help us not to be ashamed. Finally, I ask you this morning, have you received the gospel? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that if today were your last day here, on this earth, that your next day you'd be in heaven. Your next moment you'd be in heaven. You can have that assurance today. Are you saved? Are you born again? There is no greater decision that you can make in all of your life. It will affect you both now and for eternity. And again, please understand, I'm not talking about attending a church here this morning. A lot of people attend church. But not everybody that attends a church is born again. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, or let me say this, if you're backslidden and you're not walking with the Lord, and you're just kind of going through the motions and have been for a long time. Today, you need to get right with the Lord. This is your opportunity. I want to give you that opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And in it, Paul said, it reveals the righteousness of Christ. You see, here's the thing. Standing in our own righteousness, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
I'm not going to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. Accept me. I've done the best I can. What do you think? It's, it's already told me. It's filthy rags. It's unacceptable. However, he also tells me how to be made righteous in his sight, and that is by being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Imagine it like this. It's like putting on a garment. Imagine putting on a robe, wrapping yourself in the righteousness of Christ. And all that is seen is his righteousness. And when the Father sees the perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness of his Son, he declares me to be righteous. Not because of my righteousness, but because I'm in him. I'm in Christ. You can be clothed today with the righteousness of Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this morning, as we bring the service to a close, Lord, it is only fitting, it is only right, it is an obligation, Lord, to give the opportunity this morning for any here who, Lord, need to be saved. And his eyes are closed and heads are bowed this morning. If that's you, if you are not a Christian, friend, this, this is your moment. God loves you. He, he proved it. He sent his son to die for you. If you're the only person that ever lived, he still would have come for you. That's how much he cares. And if you need Christ today and you recognize that you're a sinner like everybody else in this room and you want to be saved, this is your chance. You may never have another opportunity like this. What I'd like for you to do is just to raise your hand up high and say, I, I want salvation. Pastor, I don't, I don't have that. And I want to know that I'm saved. Whoever you are, just right now, raise your hand up high and you put it back down. Anybody at all in this room, you know who you are. God bless you, bro. I see you in the back. That's awesome. Anybody else this morning, the Spirit of God speaking to you today, you need salvation. Raise your hand up. Don't be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This is life-saving power here this morning available for you. God bless you over there, bro. Anybody else? Again, if you're a Christian, praise God. If you're not, here's your chance. God bless you right there, bro. It's awesome right in the front. It's great. Others of you today, just right now, the Spirit of God speaking to you. Oh, man, it takes courage. But it took courage for Jesus to hang on the cross, to die for the sins that he didn't commit. He died for your sins, for mine. Anybody else right now? Maybe you're in the courtyard. Maybe you're in the fellowship hall. Listen, you can raise your hand up and down. The Lord sees you. Maybe you're watching online. I'd encourage you. Respond today to the message of the gospel. Anybody else here this morning? The Lord's speaking to you right now. I encourage you to raise your hand up high. I can see it. I'm gonna pray for you this morning. Anybody else today? Father, in the name of Jesus, for those here in the sanctuary, for those perhaps outside the sanctuary who have in faith extended, reached out their hand and said, Lord, I want salvation. I need you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would respond to their request. Lord, anybody that came to you humbly and broken, you never turned them away. You receive them. And so I pray that you'd give those that raise their hand the faith and the courage now to take the next step and to receive you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Folks, listen.
when you read through the Gospels, you find that everyone that Jesus called, he called publicly, he called openly. He said to them, follow me, follow me. And the Bible says that they publicly set things aside and they began to follow Jesus publicly, openly. And this morning, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you raise your hand or you thought about raising your hand or you raised your hand in the fellowship hall or in the courtyard today, I'm going to give the opportunity to come and stand below this platform, a huge step of faith, but the best step you'll ever take and receive Jesus Christ. In a moment, they're going to lead us in a song. And if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat, to come and receive salvation. If you're concerned, maybe I, you know, I don't know if I can go myself, ask the person who brought you or the person next to you, can you stand with me? And they'll stand with you. Pastor Rick will be right down here. He'll be waiting for you to arrive. He'll meet you when you get here. And then I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. So if you raise your hand, do not be ashamed. You get up and you come. And God's going to meet you here. And you're going to experience the power of salvation. Be praying. Just get up and come right now as we're led in song. Come through the courtyard. Come on in. Wait for you. Oh, your grace, so free. Washes over me. You have made me new now. Life begins with you. It's your endless love. This is what the Lord laid on my heart. The only way that you're going to overcome your fear is if you will stand in faith. The only way that you are going to overcome your fear is if you will stand in faith. Now is your time. Get up and come and receive what the Lord has for you. You will overcome fear through faith. This is your chance. One more time, B, and then we're going to pray. Just get up and come right now. We'll wait for you. Oh, your grace so free washes over me. You have made me new now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down.
prayer. Just encourage you to repeat after me. This is a prayer asking Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. And dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Today I turn from my sin and I turn my life over to you. I believe that you died and that you rose again from the dead. I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord and that you would fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit so that I can live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. Let's encourage these guys. What a massive decision that is. Folks, I want to encourage you, again, we've entered into one of the most amazing weeks, I believe, again, in human history. Everything changed. And I want to encourage you, listen, may God help us. We need to be part of the congregation of the unashamed, to be bold, to be loving, to be gracious, but to be truthful. So may God ignite a fire in this fellowship and this pastor to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel. He's coming soon. Let's, let's be ready. Let's be ready. Let's look for the opportunity when it presents itself. And let's just, just jump out there and see what God might do. If you need prayer today, I would encourage you after the service, please feel free to come forward. Love to pray with you. If not, please be in prayer this week for what God's gonna do. Good Friday's coming up. Easter sunrise service at J. Sarah, a, a truly a tremendous event. As was mentioned, we're sending out uh, all kinds of things to get the word out. Please help us with that. And let's just flood every, uh, and leverage every opportunity we have to get the word out. And uh, amen. <laughs> all right, God bless you guys.